Hey, good morning, church. Uh, please open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 through 18. And please follow along. I'll be reading from, in Spanish. Por favor, abran sus Biblias a Habacuc, capítulo 3, versículo 17 al 18. Aunque la higuera no florezca, ni haya frutos en las vidas, aunque falle la cosecha del olivo, y los campos no produzcan alimentos, aunque en el aprisco no haya ovejas, ni ganado alguno en los establos, aún así yo me regocijaré en el Señor, me alegraré en mi Dios, mi libertador. So this is a testimony from Bob Enriquez, a uh, missionary in Guatemala. I am not Bob Enriquez, but I'm reading for him. <laughs> it, was, it was after Sunday lunch, May 1st, when I noticed that my digestive system was expulsing an astonishing amount of blood. The next day, I was admitted to the hospital, and within hours, I was transferred into the intensive care unit of Hospital Angel in the center of Guatemala City. In the midst of this whirlwind of activity, I was advised that a colonoscopy had to be done. This resulted in a ileostomy, a procedure which would effectively connect the small intestine to the outside of my body. The main surgeon advised me that if the operation was not performed immediately, I had but one hour to live. Four operations later, the ileostomy has become a reality in my life for many years to come. Between operations, as I laid on a gurney, numerous promises from the word flooded my heart. I had even time to review direction and priorities of life and ministry. It was evident to me that I had experienced perhaps a time of worship most intense in recent memory. Once again, the great truth that worship is the answer to the sufferings in life was impressed upon my soul. Job's anguishing words in chapter 2 attest to this, and Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 to 18 relate to a suffering nation. Thank you. Happy, as uh, Mike said, uh, pre-4th of July uh, holiday here. We're grateful have the opportunity to have you all here, whether you are here in the building worshiping with us or you're watching and worshiping with us at home. It's just such a joy each week to open up God's word with you. I just want to remind you that each week as you come into the building, there is a note sheet and application project. And uh, I just really thoroughly enjoy seeing people taking notes and, and knowing that during the week you're reflecting on the principles. I know all the pastors feel that way. So please get in the habit of bringing that note sheet with you as you sit down and uh, take notes. Uh, and you can download that at home if you're watching and worshiping with us at home as well. Today has been mentioned in both the prayer and in uh, Norman's uh, testimony from Bob Henriquez. We are continuing in our sermon series entitled Faithful Standing on the promises of God. And we are going to be looking at a promise that was actually prayed and recorded by the prophet Habakkuk somewhere between or around 610 and 605 BC. And so please, if you haven't already done so, please open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. And I'm not surprised that uh, that can be a challenge to us. It's sometimes called the white pages of our Bible because uh, we don't go there very often. 
But if you don't know where to find Habakkuk, you can find it in the eighth book of what the, we call the Minor Prophets, or the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And you'll find the book of Habakkuk squeezed between the books of Nahum and Sephaniah. So please turn there. As you are turning there to the book of Habakkuk, let me just share with you that the name Habakkuk means to embrace or to wrestle. And in this book, you're going to see that the prophet is doing both. He's wrestling and he's embracing. Uh, and though he is a minor prophet, uh, there is nothing, as I hope you'll see today, minor about the message uh, he has to share with us today. Habakkuk is um, unlike any of the other poetic books in the Bible, whether we're talking major or minor, because it records literally a dialogue between one man and God. And, and a dialogue that ends, honestly, as we'll see today, uh, despite many unknowns, with the prophet seeing and acknowledging that God is the source of his strength. And as a result, in spite of uh, personal and uh, national desolation that's coming, he is able to choose to praise and to worship and thank God. As Norman noted earlier in the testimony, um, we, we received this uh, promise through Bob Henricus to preach Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. I've added verse 19 because I think they're a package. But uh, as Bob, uh, Bob and Ann uh, have been missionaries with us uh, for as long as I can remember, I've been here 30 plus years, they've actually served since 1972 in Guatemala at the Central American Theological Seminary, preparing and equipping and training young men and women to go into the Hispanic world, all over the Hispanic world with the gospel. And as you heard, Bob suffered a terrible illness back in May that ended resulting in him experiencing, it's hard to imagine, you know, intense problems physically with intense times of worship to his memory. But that's exactly what he testified here. These worship opportunities literally came as he was laid and on a gurney before and in between uh, surgeries that literally saved his life. He was flooded, as he said, in his heart with the scriptures. And God showed Bob, just as we're going to see the prophet here in Habakkuk, that though we are weak, our God is strong. That's something I hope you'll hear. You'll probably get tired of me saying that. But because we are weak and God is strong, I would submit to you today that no matter what comes our way, we can choose to not only be joyful, but also trust God with our whole heart. So that's kind of the theme that we're going to be looking at. Now, with these opening thoughts in mind, I want to ask a question to get us started here today. And that question is here, uh, how, now hear me, how do you pray when you really need to pray? How do you pray when you really need to pray? Now, I'm not talking about God is great, God is good kind of prayers, or, or now I lay me down to sleep kind of prayers here. I'm not talking about, Lord, would you bless this food, or hey, Lord, would you give us safe journey mercies as we travel kind of prayers. I'm talking here, brothers and sisters in Christ, about the kind of prayers that we pray when we find ourselves in dire, unwanted, unexpected, 
expectations. Anybody been there before? I'm talking circumstances that shake us to the very foundation of our faith and what we believe. Circumstances that because we seemingly not see any immediate response from the Lord, leave us feeling vulnerable or pinned down or fearful or perplexed and wondering, God, what are you doing? Or, or God, how can you let this go on? Or Lord, where are you? Or Lord, do you really care about me? That's the kind of prayer we are talking about. Over the years, I've had the opportunity serving as the shepherding pastor here at Chantilly Bible Church to walk through countless circumstances in the lives of brothers and sisters here when God's ways don't seem to make any sense. I'm talking about things like catastrophic financial calamities, frightening medical diagnoses or surgeries, um, the unfulfilled desire of, of wanting to be married or to have a child, being overwhelmed as a, a young family with the responsibilities of caring for a child 24-7, the sudden death of a loved one, or the un unwanted um, separation or divorce of a marriage, a wayward child, or, or the deep discouragement that we sometimes experience when we continue to fall to the, uh, 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 to the temptations that we're dealing with day in, and day out. You know, Corey Tin Boom knew something about tragedy and suffering. Upon emerging from a Nazi, a Nazi concentration camp, she made this statement that really blessed my heart. Here's what she said. There is no pit so deep that God isn't deeper still. There is no pit so deep that God isn't deeper still. And I really believe as we open up our study of this promise today, that's an apt analogy. Because if you've ever been in a pit, I don't have to describe to you the hopelessness and the utter despair that is so powerful and so uh, active in our hearts that, that we can feel like there's no way out or that God has literally abandoned us. And that, folks, is where we find the prophet Habakkuk as he opens up this letter, this book here. We find him just like that emotionally. However, in the end, God showed Habakkuk, and again, you're going to be, you're tired of me saying this, but I want you to hear it. Though we are weak, he discovers God is strong. And because he understands that God is strong, he is a strength in his salvation. No matter what comes this way, we're going to see it's pretty amazing what he has to deal with. He could choose joy and to trust God, and so can we. So with that, let me go ahead and read the text here. Turn, if you will, to chapter 3 and look at verses 17 through 19. And here's what the prophet says, declares here. Though, try to listen to the words. Put yourself in the circumstances here. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God is the Lord. He is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And pointing out that this is a piece of music, he says it's for the stringed instruments, a choir master. Now to help us understand the specific significance of what Habakkuk's words mean here, let me provide you with a little background information that will help you to understand what he is dealing with when he declares them and writes them. Again, Habakkuk is written around 605 BC, and that's just four years after godly king Josiah died. And he ruled over Judah from about 640 to 609 BC. 
And the interesting thing about Josiah, he is the last godly king before the destruction of Judah. In 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 2, we're introduced to King Josiah. And here's what it says about him. A lovely testimony. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not, listen to this, he didn't turn aside to the right or to the left. What a powerful testimony. And, and here's the thing. The saying goes, the age-old saying, as the king goes, so goes the country. And that was certainly true of Judah while Josiah was king. Under Josiah's rule, uh, he called for a time of national repentance that included the, the public reading of the law, establishing a second covenant with God and his people, cleansing the temple of all objects of pagan worship, restoring the celebration of the Passover, which hadn't been celebrated in years, destroying all the idolatrous high places in the land. And the impact of his reign and reforms is recorded for us in 2 Kings 23, verse 25. Look at how marvelous it says. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord. Listen to this. With all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. But very shortly after King Josiah's death, Habakkuk, the prophet that we're studying today, had to witness, he had to experience and watch the nation of Judah experience this incredible reform, begin to plunge headlong back into our past corruption and immorality and idolatry that's, that had plagued the nation of Judah for generations. And brokenhearted, if you turn over to chapter 1, you'll see Habakkuk cries out to the Lord, saying in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contentions arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice does, goes forth perverted. Do you get the picture? Observe Habakkuk's words here. His concerns are not only that his cries seem to be go unheeded by God, but also there seems in his mind that all this corruption and all this sin was being unchecked by God. But the Lord was neither indifferent nor insensitive to Habakkuk and Judah's plight. In fact, no sooner had he finished presenting this complaint or this concern to God when God's answer came thundering in. And God said, I've got a plan. It's, it's a plan that is going to blow your mind. You're not going to even believe it when I tell you. But look at what he says in verse 6. For behold... I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize the dwellings, not theirs. Judah, okay? They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They, are all, they all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather, they gather their captives like sand. Oh, God was right. I mean, Habakkuk couldn't have been more surprised. He couldn't believe what he heard. In fact, as far as Habakkuk was concerned, God's first answer didn't, wasn't an answer at all. In fact, it only created more puzzlement, more problems in his mind. After all, how could God, a holy and just God, take a more wicked nation like the Chaldeans to come and punish his people? 
And so in verses 12 and 13, we find Habakkuk crying out to God, asking, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Look at verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You, you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then? Do you hear the agony in his voice? Why then do you tolerate this treacherousness? Why are you silent? Why the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? That's a question there too, right? And then according to chapter 2, verse 1, if you turn over there, the prophet goes up into the watchtower. And there he's patiently waiting for the Lord to respond. And the Lord does indeed respond by saying, listen, Habakkuk, all wickedness, all wickedness, including the evil of the Chaldeans, it will be punished in its appointed time. Meanwhile, Habakkuk, I want to provide you with three practical thoughts to encourage and strengthen you during these difficult days. So that no matter what comes, Habakkuk, to you or Judah, you can choose joy and you can trust me. What are those three things? Chapter 2, verse 4. Look at what he says. First, God instructs Habakkuk and God's people saying, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. God had heard Habakkuk's cry. And he responded by telling the prophet that one day I'm going to make everything right. You can count on it. You can bank on it. But he also told Habakkuk until that day, you, the righteous, need to live by faith. And here's the thing. To have faith in God in the way that Habakkuk is describing here means we don't always have all the answers. We don't always think the way God thinks. We don't always act the way we believe God would have us to act. Even when things, though, are dark and gloomy, all hope seems lost, God tells Habakkuk, it is enough to know me that I am in control and I do all things well. Trust me. Trust me. And thus, in the contrast here, we see here in, in verse 4, Unlike the self-righteous and boastful and impetuous ways of the unrighteous, God says the righteous, the righteous must fully be dependent on me and trust me no matter what. Now, I'm not standing up here as any expert on any of this because admittedly, when life is hard, when suffering is heavy, it is extremely difficult to live by faith. But trusting in our sovereign God is exactly what we must do. You see, Listen, we don't just believe in God. We don't just believe in God, folks. We believe God, even when he seems slow to act in the way we think he should. For though we are weak, our God, he is strong. A second practical thought to encourage and strengthen Habakkuk and God's people during these difficulties is presented in verse 14. And look what he says. The earth... The earth will one day be filled with God's glory. Now, <laughs> the earth, as you, could, as you heard, the testimony earlier at that time was certainly not filled with the glory of God. And if you read the newspaper in the recent days or watched the news, nor is it today. But Habakkuk says here, Scripture says here, one day this great prophecy will be filled. And we can bank on that. When the Messiah rules in his kingdom and his knowledge, his glory and majesty is worldwide, he will conquer all sin. So extensive, so abundant will that time be, that knowledge and Messiah's glory that it says here in scripture that it will be like water covering the seas. 
And when that happens, the jagged rocks of injustice and that slimy sea, seaweed of sin will be covered with the smooth surface of God's righteousness. Folks, the bottom line is this. God's kingdom will prevail. When Christ returns, scriptures assure us that God's glory will fill the earth, putting down all sin and establishing his righteous kingdom forever. And for that very reason, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, the Apostle Paul instructs believers saying, for this light momentary affliction that whatever we're dealing with is preparing us for what? For internal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not. Do you see that? That's our action. As we look not on to the things that are, are seen, but on the things not unse- that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. All this is going to go away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And finally, I love chapter 2, verse 20. I can remember when I was a kid, the choir would come out and go, The Lord is in his holy temple. And everybody went silent, you know. Uh, It was a call to worship. And they did it every week. But this third thing that he brings out, this practical thought to encourage and strengthen Habakkuk and the people, in verse 20 says, The Lord is is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his... In contrast to the dumb, man-made, carved idols, our living, our self-existent, our eternal, holy, sovereign God says he rules over the universe from his holy temple in heaven. And therefore, looking back at verse 20, he goes on to instruct us, let all the earth keep silent before him. When I read these verses, I, 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 I couldn't imagine these are the type of words you, you see on a greeting card. The Lord is in his holy temple, right? Or, or, I've never yet put on a verse when I, I'm thinking of you, the Lord is in his holy. No, I've never done that. So how do we find comfort and how do we find encouragement in these words? Well, I believe that the Lord's presence in his holy temple helps us see and understand that our God, despite all the stuff that's going on around us, is ruling and over all things. And therefore world events that so distress us. We need to understand are not a worry to our God. Unlike us he's not pacing all night. Walking the floors. He's not wringing his hands. He's not uh, second guessing everything that he decides. And brings to pass or what he's going to do in the future. He's not insensitive to our suffering. He's not inactive or unaware to the events of our lives. No brothers and sisters in Christ even And the trials and the difficulties, when they appear like thick, dark clouds, we need not fear or fret because our God, our mighty God, is sitting on his throne today. He is in control. And so Habakkuk and all of us, the conclusion I see here, the message is clear. He says, stop worrying. Stop doubting. And and the one that really hits home, stop complaining. I got this. Now, I asked earlier, how do you pray when you really need to pray? And I asked that in part because we now turn to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we discover that the prophet who's been wrestling and arguing with the Lord now breaks out in this majestic prayer. A prayer that's written in the form of a worshipful kind of song. And from this prayer, I see God has presented, provided three, a threefold pattern for us to follow when we encounter things in life we just don't get. First, verses 1 and 2. We see our need to request God's mercy. 
a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shingon. I can't pronounce that. Nobody else knows how to pronounce it either. It's a song, okay? O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. It's clear to me that Habakkuk has clearly heard. He understands and he believes what God is saying. But notice here that he doesn't say, Lord, uh, ask for deliverance. He, he doesn't ask for his own personal ease and comfort. Um, he doesn't pray that the Chaldeans will suddenly lose the battle or that Jerusalem will not be sacked as God has promised. What he does pray is, Lord, your will be done. I trust you. This is not a begrudging acceptance. This is a resounding statement of faith by the prophet Habakkuk. I tried to think about what Habakkuk was thinking here. And here's what I wrote down. I think he's thinking, God, I don't pretend to fully understand everything. In fact, when I consider, contemplate what you're about to do, I'm in awe. In fact, I'm shaking. I don't completely understand. And necessarily, I don't really like what you're about to do with the Chaldeans to bring them in and bring judgment on your people. But I do know this, God. You are righteous and you are holy. You are on your throne. And Lord, you are infinitely more wise and powerful than me and all my enemies and my problems. And so, Lord, by faith, I am choosing to place my trust on your promises and release myself into your care. My only request, God, is in your wrath, Lord, you might remember mercy. Because God was his strength and his salvation, Habakkuk shows us here, no matter what comes our way, we can choose. We can choose to trust him and have joy in whatever we come encounter. For though we are weak, <laughs> our God is strong. Say that with me. For though we are weak, our God is strong. I think we can do better than that. For though we are weak, our God is strong. In addition to requesting mercy, the second element I see in his prayer is recall and declare God's mighty deeds. Recall and declare God's mighty. In verses 3 through 16 here, Habakkuk's prayer is, is saying, in spite of all the coming, I'm going to remember God's character. And, and, and I'm going to reminisce on God's mighty acts of deliverance of his people. And in that, it, it bolstered his faith and his confidence and trust in God. Verses 3 through 5. I remember the glory days, he says, Lord, when you delivered us from Egypt. Verses 6 and 7, he reflects on and remembers God's mighty deeds in delivering his people during the conquest of Canaan. Look at verse 9, one of my favorites. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many hours, Selah, you split the earth with rivers. And the picture here is one of an archer whose bow is out of the sheath, ready for use. What a beautiful picture, visual of God's defense of his people. Verse 11, Habakkuk recalls when, when they were battling Gibeon, and, and God calls the sun to stand still and the moon to be motionless so that Joshua could win the victory. Verses 12 through 14, how beautiful this is. When Habakkuk notices God marching, marching across the land, executing his judgment, that when that happens, that even the age-old hills, the firmest elements on the globe, they poetically crumble into dust at his presence. That is our mighty God. 
And from Habakkuk's example here, we see that when it comes, brothers and sisters, to being encouraged during those difficult times, a critical, a critical action for us to take is recalling how God has worked personally in our lives in the past. And also, I believe, by meditating on the mighty acts of God, the examples of his work for his people that are recorded in Scripture. One thing for sure is when you start thinking about those type of things, how he's worked in our life, how he's worked in his people on the scriptures, such remembrances and reflections enables us to clearly see, though I'm weak, though you're weak, God is strong. And because God is our strength and our Savior, no matter what comes our way, we can choose joy and trust him completely. The third application I see here in his prayer is our need to rely on the sufficiency of God. Verse 17, the prophet, we read these earlier, but they're so powerful. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Are you getting a picture? Do you understand how devastating what Habakkuk is encountering here, about to encounter? How what he's describing? The situation is worse than anything you or I could imagine. He not only foresees the possibility that he could lose everything, he foresees the certainty that the world as he knows it was going to be turned on its head, and along with everything and anyone he loves would likely be destroyed. It's no wonder then in verse 16 when he's contemplating this, it says here that it made the prophet's heart pound and his lips quiver and his legs shake. And it's with that last thought in mind, look with me at the first word of verse 18. It blows my mind. It pops off the page. Yet, after all those things he just said, yet declares the prophet confidently, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. How could he respond this way? Well, look at verse 19. He tells us, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the fears, and he makes me tread on high places. Here in beautiful, poetic language, the prophet celebrates, he rejoices in the fact that it's in trust in God that will enable him to walk in all sorts of life most difficult terrains, and notice he'll do it with strength, he'll do it with sure-footedness, and he'll do it with the speed of a deer or a gazelle. This is not a little train engine who could type of child story here where he finds himself huffing and puffing up the mountain and saying, I think I can, I think I can. No, that's not what this is. The prophet whose name means to embrace finally stopped wrestling with God, and he's embraced the fact that although I am weak, God is strong. And in so doing, he clearly shows us, brothers and sisters in Christ, that genuine joy, genuine stability comes into our life only when we have an intimate, trusting, personal relationship with the Lord, our God. To see what I mean, look at verse 19. Observe all the personal pronouns. God, the Lord, he declares, is what? My strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. I hope you understand there's a world of difference between the Lord being strength or the Lord is strength and the Lord is my strength. 
One denotes a fact, the other denotes possession and personal intimacy relationship. So let me pause here. Can you, can I today, like the prophet Habakkuk saying, regardless, Lord, of what happens, Lord, you, you're my strength. Lord, you make my feet like deer's. You make me tread on my high places. The way you see to get out from under our burdens and cares is to get right under the Lord. And the way to get under the Lord, uh, uh, under the Lord is to, you know, be over our circumstances, which is in a trust in him. Folks, that's, that's a lesson worth the price of admission today. For though, for though we are weak, our mighty God is strong. Say that with me again. For though we are weak, God is strong. Now, in lieu of what you just, in view of what you just said, let me stop again and say, what are you going through today that you're afraid of? What's in your world falling apart right now? And understand this, the big test, or the point of this sermon is, you, you don't, we don't get to choose what we go through. But one of the things I clearly see is that we do get to choose how we go through it. And recognizing that God is your strength, no matter what you face, you and I can choose to say, yet I, I will rejoice in the Lord, the God of my salvation. We're going to take some time now to celebrate the Lord's table. And I want to encourage you to think about some of the things that we've talked about here today. I want to give you a moment to take some time to reflect on the things that we have looked at here in the Word. Of course, the greatest vulnerability we ever experience is the fact that we are lost and we cannot save ourselves. And what we are celebrating now is to remember that our Savior, He, he, he died in our place and for our sins. And this is a time to remember and give thanks for that. And if God is for us, who can be? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this, uh, for this time. And as Mike comes now and leads us, Pastor Mike comes and leads us in this time of celebration around your table, I pray you'll bring to our hearts and minds all the things that we've looked at in your word today that we will be thankful. Thank you, Lord, for this time where we as a church can gather and affirm our faith, our trust in you, and give joy for the God of our salvation. As we pray this in his precious name, amen.